0: Hello everyone and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Mirabai Starr. Mirabai is an adjunct professor of philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico in Taos. She is the editor of the Sounds True Saint series, uh, Devotions, Prayers and Living Wisdom. She's a contributor to Living Fully, Dying Well and is known for the acclaimed translations of Dark Night of the Soul by John of the Cross, The Interior Castle, and The Book of My Life by Teresa of Avila. Today we will discuss her new book, God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Mirabai is a passionate and personal explorer, explorer, of the unifying wisdom of the three Abrahamic faiths that is reflected in this new book. It's her hope that this book will serve as a reminder that a dedication to loving kindness is the highest expression of faith for all three religions. A fabulous message, and I'm so delighted to have you, Mirabai, welcome.
1: Thank you, Miriam, I'm honored to be here.
0: Mirabai, I understand that even from the time you were a young child, you were very spiritual, despite being raised in a secular Jewish family. Tell us about your background and how that put you on the path you were you were eventually to take.
1: Mm. Well, it, it's almost in spite of my upbringing that I seem to have taken this spiritual path in my life, because my parents, as you mentioned, were secular people they were jewish but they had really rejected what they considered to be the patriarchal aspects of institutionalized religion and Judaism to them represented many uh concepts and and behaviors that they really felt were unhelpful in this world especially in terms of of a consciousness of social justice like the The angry father-god thing did not work for them. Plus, I think that they were really part of that generation of people just after the war who had really given up on religion, and it did not seem to be a viable uh, option any longer for a lot of American Jews or a lot of kind of westernized Jews. And so they really began to explore alternative spiritualities, um, such as native traditions and particularly eastern philosophy, Buddhism and Hinduism, but mostly I would say anything that felt to them like organized or institutionalized religion was rejected and we moved from uh, our kind of upper middle class suburban lifestyle in New York to the mountains of northern New Mexico when I was around 11 via a year of adventures in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico which at that time in the early 70s was completely undeveloped and wild um, and when we ended up in Taos, New Mexico, they really plugged into the whole back-to-the-land alternative lifestyle scene, the, the counterculture, really. And as a result of that, I was exposed to a place called the Lama Foundation, which is still a thriving ecumenical community here in the mountains of northern New Mexico that was dedicated to really the intersection between all the world's spiritual paths. And through my association with Lama, I began to really fall in love with each one of these paths individually and then somehow collectively, starting with Hinduism and then Buddhism and then Sufism. Interestingly enough, um, everything but Christianity, which it just wasn't really exposed to, until later when I was in college and I encountered the Christian mystics and began translating them, which is now... Um, what I am known for is my, my translations of the Christian mystics as a
0: Jewish, Sufi, Buddhist, Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have the sense that something very similar, uh, there's a similar dynamic in society today that kind of replicates what was happening in the 60s. It is this kind of circular um yearning for meaning, uh, yearning for connection and, and moving into the mystical side. Now, it, it, in some cases, it's taking the form of New Age and paranormal and looking for the magical. In other cases, it's a kind of a movement into the uh, the, the more right-wing evangelical uh, aspect of religion. Mm -hmm. Um, As a professor of religion, where do you see things going today? How do you read the terrain?
1: Yeah, um, interesting. I think that, that you really struck the chord that I'm hearing resonating in the culture, which is that people are looking for meaning and purpose, but some of the kind of New Age alternatives haven't given them the sense of substance that they're looking for, that there's something too fluffy in some of the alternative spiritualities that have arisen on the scene in the last um, generation or so. And I'm not putting them all down, but, but that it sort of has turned spirituality into a commodity in some sense, that if you just sign up for the right workshop and pay money for the right online course, then you're going to be free from suffering. And I think people have been... Finding that they're not getting the spiritual nourishment that they're seeking, so they've rejected the institutionalized religious forms that maybe they grew up with, but they're not really finding a, um, something that feeds their souls on a deep level in in some of the the newer iterations of these these spiritual uh, um, paths. And so I find that people are really returning to some of the established religious traditions that they may have rejected, but they are doing so in a very discerning way so that they're able to sift through some of the beliefs and practices and historical uh, behaviors that have upset them or made them feel that they were counter to their true spiritual yearning. But they don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They want to find the jewels and mine those jewels that are there in all of the world's ancient religious traditions um, underneath often a great deal of historic rubble that has um, obscured those shining teachings and those teachings are mystical teachings and they're also social justice teachings.
0: I get the feeling that the churches are also, um, scrambling to reinvent themselves at this time, very much in, in alignment with wh- what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed that too. I noticed that too. And, and so this process is every bit as demanding in a way as joining a monastery, you know, and having to take certain kinds of rigorous monastic vows because in order to be on a spiritual path, we we make a commitment to walk through a certain kind of narrow gate in our lives, that our spirituality can no longer be just a matter of convenience, you know, kind of weekend thing that we do to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, but, but requires a, a whole body participation. But that kind of rigorous commitment and discipline that I'm talking about in walking the spiritual path Need not be exclusive, in fact, I feel that it must not be at this time exclusive. What I mean is we don't have to pick one we don't have to be just an evangelical Christian or uh, a conservative Jew or a uh, a muslim who who obeys certain kinds of, of strictures uh, of of um, commandments regarding the religion that necessarily exclude everybody else. In fact, I think it's a time when we are called to go deeply in two or three or even more spiritual traditions, open our hearts to them, and include all wisdom ways at, a, at this time of great urgency in the world when um, cultivating our spiritual lives is probably what's going to keep um, ourselves, each other, and the planet uh, alive and thriving.
0: And what do you think will be the the end result of exploring multiple religions?
1: I think that as long as we continue to drop down into our hearts, and um, and maybe not dwell just in our heads, uh, I think that wonderful things are going to unfold in that place of love. There's there is a fire in the heart. I think it's the fire of yearning for a connection with the divine, and it's also just the fire of love that includes and accepts and embraces all beings that is the place where, where the dangerous differences uh, melt. They, those concerns that we have about otherness just dissolve in, in the warmth of the loving heart. And I think all of the world's great religious traditions invite us into that heart space, both, as I said, in terms of their mystical teachings about loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and also the social justice teachings that are a set of very clear instructions about how to treat one another, how to treat the stranger among us, how to treat the most vulnerable members of, of our society, how to feel the pain of those who suffer in our own bodies and not intellectualize what's happening. For those like me who, who teach and, and study, it's um, very tempting to stay in our heads and and just come up with intellectual explanations for this or that. But I think that the, the path um, of highest risk and highest yield is the one where we... We drop down into our bodies and into our hearts and simply say yes to each other.
0: Now, these these teachings are, are drawn from the foundational uh, writings of each religion. They're hundreds and thousands of years old. Uh, why should they be observed uh, in their purest way anymore today, than they have been in the past. I mean, in, in the past we've seen horrible things being perpetrated in the name of religion. Why should it be any different today?
1: Right, because um just as people have cherry-picked through the Old and New Testaments and the Quran to justify acts of terrible atrocity, as you as you allude to here, I am advocating that we cherry pick through these same scriptures for those jewels and they are there that advocate treating one another with loving kindness and surrendering the whole of our lives to the mystery of the divine. And so I'm not, um, claiming that I'm not claiming that there's anything wrong with that very human urge to try to take ancient scriptures and find in them that which justifies our position. But what I am advocating is that we go to those beautiful, beautiful ancient texts and find the teachings of love and draw them up from that deep well and offer them to the world. There's there's medicine there, and we need it now.
0: Mm. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to New Consciousness Review, and we're chatting with Mirabai Star about her book, God of Love. It's interesting at this season when um, uh, the the Christians are celebrating um, Good Friday and and the Passion of Christ and Easter, the Resurrection, and the Jews are celebrating the Passover and the the season of renewal. um, What would you, um, what lesson would you draw, particularly from this season, uh, for the notions of freedom and renewal?
2: Mm,
1: It's such a rich time, isn't it? And I have had the unusual good fortune of being exposed to very deep mystical teachings in Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Although I, I grew up, as I said, in a, in a secular Jewish household and very much identify with my Jewish heritage, it has not stopped me <laughs> from running to the sacred places of other world religious traditions. And, um, and I think it's just fascinating that this particular week uh, Passover and Easter coincide exactly, and in fact, on on Sunday, um, I'm going to be giving an East the Easter sermon at the Unity Church here in town uh, on on Easter morning, and then that evening, I'm participating in co-leading uh, a Passover Seder with my community, and I am completely at peace <laughs> with this kind of uh, a blending of traditions. Last year. I had the amazing fortune of accompanying a Catholic priest friend of mine who I've collaborated with on a book called Mother of God, Similar to Fire. Father Bill McNichols is an iconographer who paints these exquisite exquisite icons of Mother Mary, and I wrote a series of prayer poems that coincided with his icons of Mary. And last year he brought me to a little tiny adobe penitente church here in the mountains of Northern New Mexico that very few Anglo people had ever been to where liturgy is conducted entirely in Spanish. And he was giving mass to these people and I was able to be there. And because I speak Spanish, I was, I was welcome and because I'm a friend of father Bill's and it was like stepping back into a medieval time where there was this feeling of potent spirituality that has its roots in ancient Spain w- during a time when Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived together in relative harmony and, in fact, collaboration under Muslim rule for 700 years during the, the so-called Golden Age of Spain. And that tricultural, uh Abrahamic companionship really migrated here to the mountains of northern new mexico and even though the people don't even recognize anymore that their that their liturgy and their beliefs and their and their spirituality is drawn from from two other abrahamic faiths in, adi- in addition to christianity judaism and islam i can feel it in their spirituality and it's so potent and powerful that's going on here all around me in northern new mexico as we speak this penitente ancient brotherhood and their celebration of the Passion of Christ, which is the most holy time of year um, here in northern New Mexico. So it's it's really in the landscape that I live in, the physical landscape that I live in here in the mountains. And um, it's just so precious to me that I get to participate in this very sacred time on so many levels uh, with such a, a strong dose of love. This is not an intellectual pursuit for me. And it's very, it's visceral as well. It's very much in the land and in the cells of our bodies around here. And then yesterday, I met with a wonderful Zen Roshi, um, Angie Boisavane, who's visiting from California to celebrate the Buddha's birthday, which is also this week. So they celebrate the birth of the baby Buddha during this week. And I just love that it's all coinciding and overlapping and then I get to taste it all.
0: (laughs) You you mentioned the uh, experience with the penitente, which you also describe in your book as um, experiencing it at a visceral level. Um, Is it a a a mistaken impression or is it uh, true that um, religious practices that are closer to the land uh, more indigenous in simpler um populations even even within the united states and and you know across the spectrum of religions but the ones that are really rooted in very um emotional as opposed to intellectual um practices um do you feel that they get closer to the mystical state?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think what you're referring to is a kind of folk religion that is that lives in the cells of our bodies and in our relationship to the earth that we walk. And I do feel that there is a closer connection with the mystical. I mean, there is nothing cold or removed about the imagery of the passion of Christ. Right now, I happen to be translating the works of Julian of Norwich, the, the uh, medieval... English mystic who wrote in incredible detail about the suffering of Christ and yet wrote about it with this kind of cheerfulness and um what <laughs> what she calls friend the friendliness of Christ who bled to death. What <laughs> language are you translating from? Old English, Old Middle English. English, Middle English actually. And it's so visceral and yet it's so um it's so wholesome. There there's nothing to me, that is spooky about it. It's, it's very integrated with the body. And I think that this period of time of the, the death and resurrection is, um, is one that is not in any way alien to our experience, but integral to our experiences as human beings. And so this particular week of Holy Week that we're in now is, is an opportunity in my mind from a mystical standpoint to die and be born again. I mean, I think we're invited to do that on the spiritual path every day of our lives. But this, during this time of year, we have a very blessed container to hold that transformational energy. And that we are, in fact, being asked to let go all the way, to die all the way down and let go of everything that no longer serves us and of everything that every shred of selfishness that might prevent us from showing up for what Christ called the least of these, my brothers and sisters, who are suffering. That we are being called to feel the pain of the suffering of the world in our own bodies, to allow that pain to break our hearts and break open our hearts. That we are not allowed anymore the luxury of turning away. That we, that we are being required to let the pain of the world all the way in to strip us down and transform us so that we can be of service. And I don't mean as martyrs. I mean joyful, childlike, loving service to ourselves and one another and the earth herself. And this, is, this time of year is a wonderful opportunity to die.
0: okay Um, you're you're actually using the language of Christian mysticism and yet the message is one that would be totally at home within New Age unity consciousness. Do you see any material difference between the two?
1: No I don't I think that that urge that you spoke about that you in your work or detecting in in the culture is is exactly that that people are are hungry for that unitive consciousness and they're going to be we are they we are searching for it wherever we can find it one of the places that i most find that that unitive consciousness is in mystical poetry that there is an aesthetic quality to this to the spiritual path we're on, that if our hearts are touched and if our hearts melt in the face of beauty, wonderful things can happen. So it's really important to me to surround myself with beautiful language and beautiful art and beautiful food and things that that open and soften my heart. This isn't all supposed to be work. And yet there is a, a very deeply serious aspect Um, to what's going on. When I talk about the necessity of dying, this is not a walk in the park. This is a, this is a powerful transformation that requires jumping off the cliff and letting ourselves down into the arms of radical unknowingness. And the connection between death and the great mystery is, is a powerful one. I mean, what I, what I didn't mention when you asked me the question originally about what kind of started me on such a, such a passionate spiritual path at such a young age when there wasn't a, um, when I didn't have the family culture to support it? Really, the probably the most powerful impulse for me was trying to understand and learn to live with death. I experienced um, some very serious, uh, intimate deaths when I was very young. The death of my older brother from cancer when I was seven and he was Mm 10. And then the death of my first love when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And that was a a breaking open into a numinous realm that I could not ignore. It was a it was a um, I was face to face with the ultimate mystery, which I both which I found both terrifying and incredibly alluring. And the alluring part had to do with the fact that in spite of the tragedy that i had experienced tragedies i had experienced the the mystery itself seemed to be imbued with this incredible love and i wanted it i wanted that love in fact the, this connection between missing a loved one who dies and longing for god is um is a very powerful one for me and has been my whole life
0: well, uh, I'm sure it's stood you in good stead. Um, I, I just want to say that if you've just joined us, we are speaking with Mirabai Starr and discussing her book, God of Love. This is New Consciousness Review, and I'm Miriam Knight. Um, you you lost a child. I can't imagine anything more um, tragic Really, than than the feelings of a mother who has lost a child. How did you manage to release the hold that grief had on you?
1: Hmm, I have not released the hold that grief has on me. Um, first of all, and thank you, by the way, for your for your sympathetic description of that, Miriam. Um, I grief is a part of me now. It's it's simply integrated with the fullness of my being. Um, I still work with other bereaved parents. That's one of the ways that, that I have responded to, to what happened to me, to the tragic loss of my child. Um, I, my community surrounded me with such love and support when Jenny died that, that when I was able to breathe again, um, after about a year, I, I had the impulse to try to be of service to others, which I see is very, very common in the bereaved Parent community, um, but I don't think any of us who have lost a child are ever free from the the sorrow that just lives in our hearts. It doesn't uh lead me anymore. I, I would say it used to grief used to lead my life, and it took me just about nine years, a little over nine years before I was able to sincerely stand up and say, I think this it, grief is no longer the leader here, uh, but it's still my loving companion, as is my, my daughter, Jenny, is so much part of everything that I that I do and am. And I think that you may know the the story itself is, is quite strange, which is that my first book is a new translation of Dark Night of the Soul by the 16th century Spanish mystic, St. John of the Cross, and that book came out the exact day that jenny died in a car accident wow so those two events coincided to the day and they both together uh set the course of my life ever after and that was about 10 years ago
0: Mm -hmm. many people i've spoken with who have had actually a dark night of the soul um when they emerge from it, one of the components is what you refer to as death, what some of them refer to as surrender. Yes. And another very common component is an expanded perception, an expanded awareness of other dimensions and of, and of the numinous. Um, have you experienced anything like that? <laughs>
1: Absolutely, that is that's probably the hallmark of my experience of of losing a child. I mean, as I said, I had I had quite a few really significant deaths in my life, but um, the death of my daughter Jenny when I was forty years old was by far the most significant experience I ever had. Uh, certainly, the most significant death experience, but cert- the the most ex- um significant life experience and although I had been on a spiritual path since I was I mean a serious spiritual path I was a very serious little yogi since I was about 14 <laughs> I felt that my spiritual life truly began the day that that Jenny died and and yes that numinous realm was cracked open wide for me and I I rested in the absolute emptiness of The divine. Mm. And it has changed everything for me ever since. I truly felt that I died with my child and I allowed that death. I didn't try to scramble to recreate myself. I noticed I was dying and I surrendered. And I said, don't be in any rush to recreate yourself because this is the opportunity the mystics of all the ages have been talking about. And it is none of your business what happens next. Just, just breathe, pay attention, and love. Love Jenny, and love God, and know nothing. I gave my myself permission and know nothing, and that was the most powerful teaching ever.
2: Hmm.
0: Did you find that the image or uh, notion of a divine mother or the divine feminine? Was a help at this time?
1: Oh yes, Miriam, what a wonderful question. Yes. Um you know again in here in northern New Mexico with its very indigenous oriented spirituality that inf- that informs the the kind of um Spanish Catholicism of the area, there is such a powerful devotion to Mary, especially in the form of Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe. Guadalupe is a, as an, um, an apparition of, of Mary to the, to the indigenous people of, of this part of the world. And, uh, and so I was able to participate in one of the Good Friday celebrations a couple of years after Jenny died when I was still deeply suffering. And there is this encounter, they call it the Encuentro, between Mary and Jesus in this kind of pageant that is done here. And uh, when I witnessed this pageant in which a statue of Mary is taken down from the church and a a statue of Jesus is brought up from a tomb in an ancient uh, shrine nearby. And they are brought across the landscape to meet each other while the while the parishioners are singing and chanting in medieval Spanish and the two statues come together and kiss and then separate again and walk backwards away from each other. It was something, something incredibly powerful and visceral transformed inside me. Um, in which I was able to identify with the mother of Jesus, who was a Jewish mother like me, named Miriam, which is my Jewish name and is your name. Um, and I was able to identify with that young Jewish mother named Miriam, who had to say goodbye to her most beloved child. And in witnessing this Encuentro, I somehow knew that I was not alone when you lose a child, maybe when you lose anyone who's dear to you it's very difficult at times to not feel like you are absolutely alone in the universe and in that moment my my solitude melted into her embrace, and I felt not only that I was that I had her support but that I also was part of this web. Of mothers everywhere and that our task is to support one another in our times of deepest darkness
0: Mm. I would imagine that by extension if we look at the pain in the world at this time that it is our um, task as mothers to support the pain of the world the pain of the oppressed at this time
1: yes it's so it would be so much Easier to not let ourselves feel it, but I agree, Miriam, I think it is our task to support um, as mothers, as women, um, those who are suffering, and to allow to allow their pain into our hearts and transform our hearts so that we can actually be energized to be of service. I think our resistance to the pain drains us and our softening around the truth of the human predicament. Uh, is what empowers us. I speak in this book, um, quite a bit about, about the feminine face of the divine, as well as the kind of prophetic call that I feel all human beings are receiving at this time, that, that we're all being called as prophets to stand up and, and speak the truth, even if we don't really know what that truth is, but to allow ourselves to get out of our own way and, and, uh, say what needs to be said with as much passion and poetry and love as we can possibly uh,
0: muster.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, again, at this season, uh, we talk about the Messiah. And um, it, there's, there's a kind of, in, in me, my, my attitude towards the idea of the Messiah is very ambivalent. Because it's like we have to do these mechanical things and be good and then God will come and pull us out of the drink and make everything good again. Mm -hmm. Um, Or uh, we can create the world to come through our reinventing our own attitudes and our changing our hearts. So Mm -hmm. I, I was just wondering what, as a professor of world religions um what is your attitude towards the messianic idea
1: oh yeah that was beautifully said by the way miriam um and the afterword of of my book god of love is all about this it's it's um my position is that and i think that there are other jews who probably join me in in this version of the messianic vision is that we are all being called to collectively step up right now um, and bring that messianic reality to fruition. What what the Messiah implies is a kind of perfect being who will bring perfect order to a broken world. And the the trouble with that image is that is that many of us carry around this burden of perfection that does not serve us at all, in fact, is is counterproductive because we somehow feel that we're always going to miss the mark. We're never good enough, we're never anything enough, or we're too much of something, especially women. uh, Many women I know feel like they're forever too much and they're always trying to tone themselves down. Um, And so the messianic kind of imagery that we've inherited, I think, reinforces this un- unhelpful idea of perfection. In fact, I think that what we're being called to do collectively as a community of human beings who care is in all of our glorious imperfection and too muchness, or not enoughness and our too muchness, stand up and open our hearts and extend ourselves to each other and especially to those we consider and have been conditioned to see as the other.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: and and embrace all wisdom ways and when when we see injustice to speak out and when we see beauty to praise it with all our hearts
0: it's interesting that um we're seeing played out on the american political stage a, a call or a trumpeting of faith and yet what you're talking about in your book is not blind faith. Um, I'd like to read a little passage from your book that I thought was just beautiful. You say, Faith lies at the heart of the creative tension between forgetting and remembering. In melting into the boundlessness of divine love, we unlearn everything we thought we knew about Allah. Only then, by becoming love, do we come to know truly. This kind of faith is not blind though it strips us of our ordinary apparatus of perception. It is a faith tempered in the fire of experience, the experience of absolute surrender to the mystery. It cannot be shaken. It is inviolable. So if I understand this correctly, you're talking about the direct experience of the divine. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. And, and that's what mystical means, of course. A mystical experience isn't necessarily an experience of the supernatural or the magical. It's a direct encounter with the divine. And the mystics of all traditions have reported on having a direct face-to-face meeting with the source of their heart's deepest longing. And they unanimously claim that that encounter, that direct encounter with what I call the mystery, uh, is ineffable; it cannot be described in language. In fact, it cannot be, it cannot be conceived of with concepts. And yet, the mystics write these gorgeous love poems to God, in which they pour out many, many words—beautiful, delicious words—to try to describe that which they fully admit cannot be described. As and do do. As high, okay, as too high, And I have always been fascinated by that paradox, that we, we claim that our encounter with the source of love itself um, is beyond all language and concepts, and yet we cannot resist the impulse to uh, celebrate that love through beautiful, poetic, lyrical love
0: language. You know, this kind of reminds me of a flood of books that I get, of people who have had a psychic awakening, um, or a, a psychic experience or a near death or out of body experience. And it is, it so overturns their world that they just have to get it out and, and get, get the witness out on paper so that other people can, um, be validated and come forward with their own experiences. It's like, um the the veil between the mystical and the physical is getting so so thin it takes almost nothing to reach through it mm. and people are opening um to to the reality of their experiences and to the legitimacy of these experiences in ways they never have before
1: yes yes and and i think that impulse to tell one's story is is irresistible. And, and I see that in the grief community, too, that so many people who have experienced a life-transforming loss, particularly parents with the loss of a child, once they get through um, the initial anguish of loss and begin to experience the spiritual dimensions, cannot resist wanting to write about it and tell their story. So there, there are many, many books that cross my desk of people saying, I have to tell you what happened when my loved one died, and I saw God. It's very, very common. What?
0: What is your concept of God?
1: <laughs> in, here in the last 30 seconds of our interview? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's funny, Miriam. I've been so reluctant to use what I call the G word over the years, partly because of my iconoclastic parents and the fact that they saw God as a kind of um, you know, in that Freudian sense of magical thinking, um, partly because of my strong lifelong Buddhist practice, which is reluctant to ascribe an identity, uh, to personify the great mystery. But, you know, I'm stepping up with this book, God of Love, and I am saying that yes, uh, it is, it is deeply nuanced and, um, It is not maybe a traditional definition, but I embrace, uh, the belief in God now at the ripe old age of 50. And I can, um, I can say that with, with, uh, out hesitation. So my concept of God is, uh, quite simply the source of boundless love. So I do not encounter or experience God as a person that I have conversations with that um, punishes my bad behavior and rewards my good behavior. That hasn't worked out for me at all. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do nevertheless experience God as the object of my heart's deepest longing and, um, and also wildest celebration. So I long for this beloved, this source of all love who I call the beloved um, but I also get to have tastes of that beloved every day of my life. So it's this constant dance between between yearning and uh, celebration.
0: <laughs> Lovely. You know, you say in your book that waking up is a community affair. Yes. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I think it's it's very much what I was talking about that I refer to in in my afterward that. That, um, I think we have to stop waiting around for the guru or the teacher or the messiah or the corporate executive or the president to come along and solve our problems. That, um, our problem is, is at its root a spiritual one, which is that we are longing for reconnection with our source, which is love. And if, That it's, it's not helpful to invest other people with the, the burden of responsibility for waking us up and bringing us home to love. It's something that as a community of human beings and our community includes many, many strangers we've never met and probably never will. Uh, but that together we are responsible for ushering in an age of not only tolerance, but active engagement with all beings.
0: If I might tag onto that, I think we're looking to reconnect with ourselves as well. We've been so alienated from ourselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Beautiful, Miriam. I agree completely. Okay, and for me, one of the the best uh, methodologies for that Mm -hmm. is a daily contemplative practice of some kind. If we can even carve out 10 minutes a day of quiet and solitude, sitting up, not necessarily lying down or walking, but just sitting in stillness and allowing our attention to return to our breath and our body and our, the present moment, that will do uh, wonders, I think, toward cultivating that sacred relationship with ourselves.
0: Such an important relationship. In fact, probably the most important relationship. Yeah. So, Mirabai, how do people find out more about you?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Well, you can go to my website, com. Spelled? M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R, two R's, star.com
0: Great. Well... I would like to wish you a very happy holiday season to, to you and all our listeners. And thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Miriam. Happy Holy Days to everyone.
0: We've been talking to Mirabai Starr about her book, God of Love. Our guest next week will be John Michael Greer, and we'll be discussing his book, Apocalypse Not, Everything You Should Know About 2012, Nostradamus, Nostradamus. And The Rapture is wrong. It was an illuminating and provocative book, so should be a most fascinating show. I do hope you'll join us. Now we're going to close our show with a very appropriate track of the week from Barry Goldstein called Om Shalom Home.
2: Shalom. Oh e
0: was Om Shalom Home by Barry Goldstein from his new album Shine. The intention of Om Shalom Home is to utilize the seed syllable of Om as a bridge to connect our different cultures in music which he calls the universal language of love. Barry's music invites us to lovingly express ourselves through song and celebration. To learn more about him go to BarryGoldsteinMusic.com Well, that wraps up our show for today. I hope you'll check out our website at ncreview.com. And until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.